here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the last four years. Happy anniversary to all of you. Awesome. Couple of reminders uh, before we get into the message this morning. Uh, Anyone that is interested in or contemplating baptism, please come and talk to me today, whether it's after the service or since we've got our potluck to follow. If you want to talk to me about it over there, certainly be plenty of time to do that. But just come up to me and talk to me. We'd love to love to have a nice group of folks to baptize uh, in about a month. So if you're, you've never been baptized or maybe you were baptized early on and you'd like to be rebaptized or whatever, please come and talk to me about that. We'd, we'd love to do that. Also, because of the first of the month, Woody has some new verses for the men, uh, the back there at the men's table. Uh, so guys, don't forget to pick this up. It'll certainly help you with your time in the word. And don't forget guys too, to be signing up for the men's retreat coming up this uh, summer. Uh, already, I think he told me today we've got 25 guys signed up, signed up and we've still got two months to go to sign up. So, going to be a good group. So today we, we finish up our series on 1 Peter. I know some of you are like, finally, we're going to get done 1 Peter. So anyway, if you have your Bibles and want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, next week we start a new series in the book of Romans, uh, a I'm going to say five-month study in the book of Romans. Uh, we are going to take our time. It is such a key book in the, in the Bible. It's such a key book for us as Christians. In fact, when, when people maybe even ask me, uh, Jeff, what, what's the one book that is sort of uh, the doctrinal statement, if you will, of the church, the, the doctrinal statement for Christians? Uh, I usually tell them, The book of Romans is as good as as you're going to get. Why we believe what we believe. So anyway, that begins next Sunday. And I'm excited about that. That'll take us through uh, the next couple of months. But today we want to wrap up this great letter from Peter to us as followers of God. And following up on what Peter has been talking to us about and what he talked to us about last week was the importance of learning to be dependent on God and being interdependent of each other. And he's going to now remind us again as he closes this great letter why it's so important for us not to be out there independent, trying to do things on our own, but to be part of a body, a greater body than what we are, and to continually be dependent on God. And he's given us many reasons up to this point, but what he feels led by the Holy Spirit to to tell us and remind us of now as he ends this letter, we begin in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Notice he says, be sober and alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Strong in your faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the whole world are enduring the same kinds of suffering. I want to go back to those first words that are so important. 
Because the very first word actually reminds us again of why we need to be dependent on God and we need to be interdependent on one another. The word sober, first of all, means to be fully aware of what's going on. To continually, as a Christian, be fully aware about what's going on in me, what's going on around me, what's ahead of me, all of that. I've got to have an acute awareness. That's what the word sober means. And, and so one of the reasons why it's important that we are learning to be dependent on God and interdependent on each other is because if I'm not learning those things, then I can end up sort of getting trapped, if you will, in my own world. And, and the only perspective, the only outlook, the only mindset I have is what I'm groping to come up with on my own. And therefore, I'm not really acutely aware of all that's going on around me because I have such a, I have such a thin perspective because the only perspective I have is mine. I'm not getting other people's perspectives. I'm certainly not going to the highest perspective and the best perspective, God, and seeing things from his perspective. I'm just trying to figure this out on my own. And so therefore I'm blocking, if you will, the, the, the awareness that I could have if I learned to be more dependent on God and to learn to see things from his viewpoint rather than from my lowly viewpoint and to learn to get interconnected with other people and begin to see their perspective and their view. And again, not just my own. That's one of the meanings of this great, rich Greek word. But it also means this. Besides being one who's fully or accurately aware, it also means one who is disciplined. And the discipline starts in our thinking and then leads to a disciplined life. That's what the word sober means. And so Peter here is saying, before he even gets into talking about our our spiritual conflict and all of that, he says, you and I as believers... If we're going to navigate suffering and trials and tribulation and challenges and opposition and all of this, we have got to learn to develop discipline in our lives. And that discipline starts with thinking discipline, and then it leads to a disciplined life, you see. So we need to ask the Lord, you know, Lord, how can I be more disciplined what, what, Lord, do you want to see in my life that could lead to a more disciplined lifestyle? Because even for Christians, we've sort of gotten influenced by the world around us and caught up into, it's just like, it's here and there and it's, it's everywhere. And there's no discipline to our lives. It's one of the things that leads to Christians maybe not being as faithful as we should be. Because there's just a lack of discipline there. It's why we're maybe not faithful in our prayer life and faithful in our time in the Word and faithful in our fellowship with each other. And it all comes out of that lack of discipline. So when Peter uses the word sober, he's not just talking about not having too much alcohol. Peter's talking about an awareness an acute awareness of everything in us and around us at all times, and a disciplined thought life that leads to a disciplined life. And then he says, along with that, be alert. 
And, and the word alert means to certainly be vigilant. And it also means to stay focused. Again, Peter's reminding us, as he's going to link this in in the context, that one of the things our spiritual enemy is always trying to do in our lives is to distract us. To get us off of discipline, to, to get us off track, and, and to get us here, there, and everywhere. That's what he's a master of. You know, throw something out there and see if they'll go run after it, you see. Uh, that's why, you know, in, in training dogs to run sense, one of the things that dogs have to do is to discipline themselves that even though there's hundreds of smells coming into those noses, that they've got to lock in to that one smell that they're tracking, if you will, and leave all those other things behind. And Peter's saying, you know, Christians, we need to develop more of that in our lives. Because too easily, we're not alert in the sense that we're not able to stay focused on something very long. All it takes is Satan to just, again, throw something out there and there we go running after it. And we see that today, even amongst Christians in our church cultures and whatnot. That people really haven't settled in and just track on something long enough to really see it benefit them. It's this thing, to that thing, to this movement, to that movement, to this next new thing, to that new thing. And they never really gain any traction and make any progress. And Satan is saying, don't you realize that by not being sober-minded, by not being vigilant or alert, you're playing right into your enemy's hands. Because then he says, this is why it's so important that we continually learn to be more and more dependent on God and more and more interdependent on each other because he says we have a spiritual adversary who is hostile to us. He introduces him in verse 8 as your enemy. And when he says your enemy, he's saying specifically though he is the enemy of the church and the enemy in general of all who you know know Christ as their Savior, that he zeroes in by using his minions, his demonic forces that is at his disposal, and he literally has a personal strategy of attack against each one of us. Now, not that the devil himself actually attacks each one of us, but what he is saying is he's behind it all. And that his spiritual forces that we are in conflict with are smart enough are intelligent enough that they don't just attack us without having some kind of strategy behind it. They are our personal enemy. And they are like a roaring lion, he says about the devil, always on the prowl looking for someone to devour. First of all, again, let's go back here. We need to realize we have a spiritual adversary who is continually hostile to us. That's what the word enemy means. And then Peter says, let's not forget he is the devil, diabolos in the Greek language. It means one who seeks to divide. So he seeks to divide us from our God to, to wrench into the fellowship that we are to be having with God and to cut us off there. And he seeks to divide us from each other. 
Because again, the devil is smart enough to realize if they stay dependent on God and they stay in fellowship and connected with God and they stay connected to each other in fellowship with each other, it's much harder to get anywhere with them. It's much harder to get inroads into them because the devil, one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit uh, led Peter to use the devil as a lion is because lions, even as strong as they are, normally do not attack a pack. Never do they do that. They usually sit back and look for who's isolated from the pack, who's gotten lost or away from the pack, or is there someone in that pack that is sickly, that is hurting, and that can't keep up with the pack, and therefore, instead of expending all their energy, even as a lion, to rip into a pack and, and do it that way, they just let, in a sense, their prey come to them. They look for somebody who's out there on their own, and that's who they attack. And see, that's why Peter's saying, we need to wake up. We need to realize that we are much more secure and much more safe when we are with each other and we're seeking to, to withstand the enemy's attack together than being out there on our own trying to do it. And we're certainly going to be more successful in doing this when we learn to depend on God each and every moment rather than, again, trying to do it ourselves. Because Peter's going to tell us from his own personal experience, guys, if, if we're trying to do this on our own, we will fail and fall flat on our face every time. Our enemy is not to be feared, but he is to be respected. And if we seek to go at our enemy or our enemy seeks to come at us and we're just by ourselves and we're not connected and in fellowship with God or with other believers, we are sitting ducks. And again, Peter knows what he's talking about because Peter says, I'm sharing with you from my own personal testimony. Remember, I'm the guy that told Jesus when Jesus says, Peter, you better be watching and praying with the other disciples and you better be on your knees and, and you better be soaking in everything you can from your own personal fellowship and communion with God. And you guys better stick together because he's coming after you. Peter's like, I got this, Lord. I'll never deny you. And we know what happened. Within 24 hours, Peter was like denying that he even knew who Jesus was. He fell flat on his face because he wasn't sober-minded. He wasn't alert to what was going on. He didn't have an appreciation of the conflict and the spiritual warfare and whatever that was going on around him and even in him. He didn't respect the enemy that was out there. And because of that, he thought, I can handle this on my own. And we see what happened when he sought to go up against the enemy on his own. He denied the Lord. And so that's why Peter, I think, is so passionate about this and why he left this for the very end of his letter. He wants to leave his readers with something that will resonate and stick with them in the days ahead because he's writing to a group of people who are in conflict. They're suffering. They're being persecuted. It's very easy at those points in our lives where we're struggling through something to just sort of give up and just to say, you know, this is bigger than me instead of sticking in and the fight. Because again, we're probably trying to do it in our own power and strength at that point. And so Peter says, be sober, 
Be alert. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. He is a ferocious predator. That's how Peter describes the devil. A ferocious predator who is continually on the prowl. In other words, Peter is setting it up this way. He's saying, you have an enemy of your soul. And he is always on a search and destroy mission with Christians. That's, that's what he, he... And so for us to relax, for us to get complacent, for us to begin to live independently of God and of others, we become, again, easy prey for our spiritual enemy. The word devour is an interesting word, too. Because as our spiritual enemy... For the Christian, he cannot, he cannot have our soul. That's already been sealed when we accepted Christ as our Savior. What he can do is he can demoralize Christians and he can demobilize Christians. In other words, he can't have our soul. That's already taken care of. But what he does want to do then is render us as childs, uh, children of God. He wants to render us ineffective to be used by God, to be an instrument of God, to touch other people's lives. If he can't have us, and he knows he can't, then he seeks to take us to a place where we're not being used in our lives to really touch positively and spiritually other people like God calls us to be. That's what the word devour means. You see... Satan can't inhabit you. You and I cannot be indwelt or possessed by demons in any way, but we certainly can be oppressed. And and he will demoralize us. He will discourage us. He will get us to the point where we're just satisfied to sit on the sidelines for the rest of our lives. And God never intended it for it to be that way. That's why then, That's why Peter says to all Christians, resist him. Notice those words in verse 9. Resist him. And listen, Peter would never utter those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit if it was not possible for us to resist him. Again, we're not resisting him in our own power and strength. But here's what the words mean, literally. It means to withstand or to stand firm against him. Now notice something. That means God never intended for Christians to attack the devil. There is nowhere in scripture where we are commanded or told that we are to go after the devil and attack him. That's not what we are to do. What we are to do is to be aware of when we are being attacked and to hold our ground. That's what we're to do. To not let him push us backwards and give up the spiritual ground that we've already gained, if you will, through our spiritual growth. So Peter's saying, look, don't attack the devil. But when you know you're being attacked in a spiritual way, hold your ground. Withstand that attack. That attack won't last forever. It'll be seasonal. It could be hourly. It could be a couple days or whatever. But he won't continuously do that. And then when that attack is over and you're aware of it, then start to move forward again in your growth. But God doesn't expect us 
to be moving forward at the times of attack. All God is asking us to do is just to not give up any ground that we've already gained. To withstand him. To stand firm against and to hold our ground at that moment. Then let that attack pass and then start moving forward again. That's what it means to resist him. And notice how Peter says we are to do that. Strong in your faith. Immovable. Firm. Steadfast. In your faith. In your personal faith. So can I say again, this is why we feel it always comes back to the word of God. Because how do we get strong, immovable, firm in our personal faith? Through the word of God. That's how we build our faith. It's through the word of God. You and I can't be strong in our faith apart from the word of God. Paul says... Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. I have got to build a relationship with this word that builds me strong in my faith. So that when I'm attacked, and I will primarily be attacked by my spiritual enemy, in my mind, in my thoughts, that instead of letting my thoughts go uh, in an unbiblical direction, I can attack Satan's attacks on my mind and on what I believe with what I believe and knowing that I believe it. But here's the problem. Many Christians today, because they're not in churches where they're being grounded in their faith or they don't have any personal relationship really with this book outside of opening it up on a Sunday or something. They don't really know what they believe. They don't really know. They don't have those deep convictions so that when they're tested and they're attacked, they can say, no, 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 this is what the word of God says. See, Jesus gave us a great example of that because that's exactly the same kind of attack that was placed upon him by the devil himself when the devil tempted Jesus. He was out in the wilderness and he began to attack what Jesus believed what his convictions were. And he would say, hey, Jesus, how about this? And Jesus would always, always defend the attack of Satan, even himself, with what? The word of God. He would always quote scripture. He would always tell the devil, no, no, no. This is what the word of God says. But see, if we're not strong in our faith, if we're not growing in our understanding of the word of God, then again, folks, we are sitting ducks because that's where Satan will attack. And if Christians really don't know what they believe, if they're wishy-washy, if they don't have firm convictions on things, then our spiritual enemy and the world and everybody will push us around. And we'll, we'll just sort of be in like a washing machine. Where we'll just sort of be, you know, thrown this way and thrown that way. The only way we stand firm and immovable and have any stability in our lives is when we are strong in our faith. Peter says that's how we resist him. That's how we withstand those attacks. That's how we stand firm against the attack of our spiritual enemy. And then he reminds us, may we never forget that there is in a sense a, an esprit de corps amongst believers in Christ. 
And he's reminding us there. He says, and guys, don't forget, again, when we're going through tough times, what's one of the first thoughts we have? We're the only ones going through this. I'm doing this. I'm all alone here. I'm the only one who thinks this way. I'm the only one that's dealing with this. And Peter's saying, no, 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 don't go there. Remember something, your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same kinds of things you're enduring. See, we're never alone. Again, it goes back to, but the only way I remind myself of that, the way I need to be reminded of that, is to stay in constant communion with God and stay dependent on Him and staying interdependent on each other. Because if I don't do that, then especially when the hard times of life come... I begin to isolate myself even more and I begin to back myself into a corner that God never meant for me to be backed into and I begin to think, I'm the only one who's dealing with this. I'm the only one who's struggling with these thoughts. I'm the only one who's, you know, thinking this way and feeling this way. And we continue then, instead of running towards God and running towards our brothers and sisters in Christ who we desperately need, guess what? We do just the opposite. We continue to isolate ourselves even more. And then we get to a very dangerous position, you see. And that's why Peter's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. In fact, we had a ministry leaders fellowship last night. And I asked Brian Tammany to share some words of encouragement with our leaders. And one of the things he reminded the leaders of the church here at the Oasis of this, it was great advice was before you make some decision in your life, especially some big decision, make sure that you never make that decision alone. Make sure that you are seeking several godly counselors in your life to bounce those things off of before you go out and make this decision on your own. It's a safety thing. And yet I hear so many Christians who say, yeah, I did this and I decided to do this. And then it's like, well, did you get anybody else's opinion? No, just what I felt like doing. Oh, okay. You know, it's not, that's being independent. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do. To not be interdependent on each other. To not be dependent on God and pray about things and seek His will. It's you go out there on your own. You can figure this out. You don't need God. You don't need the counsel of other Christians and, and the influence in, in their life. You can do this on, their, on your own. Vulnerable. Very vulnerable place to be for us as Christians. And he's also reminding us again of the bond that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't forget that that phrase, brothers and sisters there in this verse in 1 Peter, as it is used throughout the New Testament, literally means ones out of the same womb. That's what it means. And so he's saying, do you realize that as brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a bond, a connection, because you were born into God's family out of the same womb. Same salvation, same Savior, same faith. Paul talks about this. One faith, one baptism, one Father, one Lord. We have so much that brings us together. Yes, there's diversity in the body of Christ, but we are brothers and sisters born of the same womb. And we're in the family. 
which is why at the Oasis, one of our values is to create a church where we're family. We don't just show up on Sunday and, you know, that's it and and don't have any relationship with each other. We do this together, you see. That's what we want to build here. And being the oasis, too, we want to be a place, speaking of the word and of worship, where I was sharing with our leaders last night, the, the, the name the oasis isn't just an accident. It's literally what I think God called us to be. It, it's a place in the desert where God's people can be refreshed. That's what I always envisioned the oasis to be. A place literally in the desert where God's people can come and find refreshment. And how do we do that? Through worship and through the word, through fellowship with each other. This is how we are refreshed, you see. Just like a physical oasis. So then he says in verse 10, he says, oh, and by the way, after you have suffered for a while. So in other words, it's not if we're going to suffer as Christians. If we're going to go uh, undergo painful experiences, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when that happens. It's part of, you know, what we're going to have to deal with here on earth. We live in a fallen world. We live amongst fallen people. We ourselves, even though we are saved, we still have the old nature within us. And 90%, I believe, of the things that you and I suffer from in the world is simply from our own choices that were bad or other people's choices that were bad. And that's part of it. It's going to happen. It's reality. It's one of the great things about God. God deals in reality, not fantasy. We're going to be talking a lot about that when we get into the book of Romans. And the reality is we're going to suffer. But notice the promise here. That Peter is saying, just like we're all going to suffer. And we're going to suffer too if we're a Christian who's committed to Christ. Because Paul said, those who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You and I, if we truly want to follow the Lord, then we're going to get persecuted. We're going to suffer to some degree for the cause of Christ, which is what Peter said too. But he promises us this. He says, compared to eternity, the suffering that God's going to allow in our lives is temporary. He's not minimizing what we're going through. He's simply comparing that any length of suffering we go through here on earth is temporary compared to the eternity that God has planned for us. In fact, notice what he says in verse 10. I love this. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. Don't forget or miss what Peter's saying. He says, guys, do you realize as Christians that God has summoned us to join him in glory for all of eternity? That's our destiny. So don't ever think that God doesn't have our best interest at heart. That the things that God wants to do and produce in our lives isn't the highest good. Because he said his ultimate plan and purpose for all of us as his children is to join him in glory. And that's not something we deserve. That, that's not something we merit. That's just out of his grace that we get to join him for all of eternity in his glory 
and sort of enter into that with him. But here's what Peter does say. He, he calls God the God of all grace. And he's reminding us as Christians, I don't care what you and I are going through, what we will go through. God is the only source of sufficient help there is. That's what it means. You know, you and I can seek help from a lot of different places and and people and directions. And again, we can be so unsettled and run here and there and everywhere, chasing this and that and whatever. But Peter is bringing us back to this. He says, don't be led away. Don't be distracted from the source of your only sufficient help in your life. And that is the God of all grace. He can give you and I the grace that we need, that supernatural enablement and empowerment to meet any of life's situations and challenges, no matter what it is, because he's the God of all grace. And I want that phrase, the God of all grace, to really resonate in your minds this coming week. I want you to think about that this week. Maybe you want to underline it. Maybe you just want to Write it down, whatever. I want you to think every day that you get up this week, I have the God of all grace in my life. And He is my source of sufficient help. He won't prevent suffering from coming into my life, but He will give me everything I need to meet that suffering. It's exactly the same concept that Paul found out in his life when he says to God, God, I have this thorn in the flesh. Please take it away. And he asked God three times and God came back and said, no, my grace is sufficient. I want you to learn about my grace because God isn't about giving us an easy life. God is about giving us a fulfilling, soul-satisfying life. And that kind of life is a life that is learned to live in dependence on him and interdependence on each other. And many times, don't forget in this context, that sometimes the help that God wants to bring into our lives is going to be found in our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we shut our brothers and sisters in Christ off from us, then many times we are shutting off the means or the instrument by which God wants to help us. And so we've all got to, as we talked about last week, get rid of our pride and get rid of our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency and come to God and say, God, I need you. Every hour I need you. And sometimes I need my brothers and sisters in Christ too. Because that's how the only sufficient source of help sometimes is going to bring that help to me. And then I love this. He says, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, notice, will himself. In other words, he says, do you realize that as God, he is personally going to minister to you? And take care of you, not only through your trial and tribulation and through your season of suffering, through your season of spiritual warfare with your enemy, this lion that wants to devour you, that he will personally minister to you during that time and after. In other words, he will always be there before, during and after. And he will have a personal ministry in your life and he will do four things, Peter says, for you and me. And they're all 
very close to each other in definition. But because there's a little bit of of different nuances in each of these Greek words, I want to just point them out before we wrap this up today. Peter says, here's his personal ministry. First of all, he will restore you. Our God is a God of restoration. When we've been beaten down, when we've broke down, when we ever, our God will personally come into our life and say, I'll, I'll restore you. In fact, just like, you know, we do restoration projects and go, oh, wow, people restore cars, whatever. It's like, well, that, that is as good as new, whatever. God's even better. God can make you better than you ever were. If you let the God who can restore you come into your life. The word restore means to mend or repair. It was actually a word used in biblical times for fishermen when they would mend their nets. They would get holes in their nets after a time and they would have to take time as we saw with the fishermen in the Bible where they would have to take time to mend those nets or else, you know, repair the holes in the net. It was also used in medical times to to describe someone who would set a bone that was out of joint or broken. And so it is a picture of God as our healer. Hey, we've all been through times in our life where we got beat up, where we were hurt by others, where we were abused in some way. And God is saying, let me restore you. I'm the only one that can really heal you from the wounds and scars that have been inflicted upon you. Let me mend you. Let me repair you. Let me bring healing into your life. God is not only the God of physical healing for us. He is the God of emotional healing. And God wants to come into all of our lives and mend and repair what has been damaged. Will you let God heal you today so that you can move on? And then he says, let God confirm you. This word means to support someone to such a degree that they are stabilized. Picture God is coming around, say something that's teetering and and tottering and going back and forth. And God brings reinforcements around and literally he himself will come around and shore up what is teetering and tottering and make it so that it's stable. Because we've learned already about how important it is that we be firm and immovable and have some stability in our lives. It is only God that can truly do that because he's the only one that can truly support us to the level that we need in order to be steadfast and stable, firm and immovable. That's what it means to be confirmed. Our God is a God of confirmation. He's a God of assurance. He's a God who so wants to support us that we have such stability in our lives. How sad it is that many Christians live independently of this God who wants to restore them and confirm them. And they live in this, in this life of instability all the time rather than being supported and shored up once and for all. And then obviously strengthened. The word literally means to be filled with God's power to meet life's demands. Whatever they are. To be filled with the power of God to meet life's demands. Some of us were talking this morning before the service about the, you know, the superhero movies that are out and popular right now. And, you know, one of the things that we have to realize as Christians is that 
in the right way now. Don't, 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 don't start thinking what I'm not saying here. But, but in, in, a, in the right way, we're superheroes in this sense. Don't we have a power within us that's greater than us? Can't we, through God, do things that we can't do on our own? Right? But see, so often as Christians, we're like, oh, I just sort of, you know, bop through life and let life come to me and, and whatever, instead of realizing what we have and who we're connected to and that we have a strength beyond ourselves to meet life's demands at all times available to us. Let God strengthen you. And then finally, let Him establish you. This word, a little bit different than the word confirm, means to ground so deep that we are secure. To ground securely. Which is why the New Testament again talks to us as Christians about making sure that our roots go down deep. And even the psalmist in Psalm 1 talks about a tree that's planted. And that word means, again, roots down deep by the rivers of water. We can't stay on the surface. Or else we get swept away. We've got to sink our roots down deep and be established. And it's only God that can really establish us. It's only God that can really strengthen us. It's only God that can really confirm us. It's only God that can really restore us. He is the God of all grace. May we allow Him to be those things for us. Because He's the only source of sufficient help. And folks, the reason why Peter was so passionate about this is because he knew firsthand how he failed when he tried to do it on his own. And can I tell you the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because I can go back over my life and I can tell you time after time again that when I tried to do it on my own, I failed every time. But when I learned to live interdependently with my brothers and sisters in Christ and to have them be praying for me and I leaned on them and I relied upon them and I allowed them to be a part of my life and speak into my life and I grew through them and their relationship with God and when I learned to be dependent on God at all times, I didn't fail. Not because of me. Because I learned what Peter is sharing here. That the only way to stand up to life's trials and to our spiritual opposition and to all of life's demands that we're going to face is when we learn as Christians once and for all to get rid of our pride, to get rid of our self-reliance and all of that and our self-sufficiency and say, God, I need you and I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. One other thing I'll leave with you. As Peter ends this, notice what he says in verse 12. He says, Through Silvanus, whom I know to be a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Those words, stand fast, again, mean to hold your ground. Peter says, hold your ground in the grace of God. And one other thing I want to point out. 
When he talks about the true grace of God, it's actually a very interesting word. The meaning that I come up with from this word was, was this. That what Peter's communicating here to us as Christians is, and I hope I can communicate this clearly. He says, don't save the grace of God back when God gives you his grace. Spend it all. Don't, 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 don't hold it back. Don't save it. Spend it all for that moment that God is giving it to you. Because God's grace is sort of like the manna of the Old Testament. That every new day, God will give me grace for that day. Every new trial, every new suffering, every new spiritual warfare and attack I go through, He will give me renewed grace for that time. So don't hold back on that grace. Don't, don't save it for another time. Spend it all and saturate it all in that moment. That's what He means by the true grace of God. Because God will give us new grace for every new thing. So don't hold back on his grace. Totally depend on him in that moment and just spend it all that he gives you. And don't think, well, if I just lean on God so much or my brothers and sisters in Christ through this, that what am I going to have for the next thing that comes by? No, no, no. Again, that's where the enemy tries to get us thinking about what's next. No. Jesus said, sufficient is today. Just, just focus on today. I'll get you through this day. I'll get you through this hour. I'll get you through this minute. If something else comes the next minute, I'll give you renewed grace for that. That's true grace. That's true grace. For folks, it's only in Christ alone that we can meet life's demands. It's only in Christ alone that we can stand before our spiritual enemy. And withstand his attack. It's only in Christ alone that we can manage the trials and tribulations and suffering alike. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. As they're coming, the song we're going to end with this morning is probably one of my favorite choruses, songs of all time. So I want to lead you in this song again today. So let's stand, please, and sing in Christ alone. And as we sing the words of this song, I hope we mean them, that truly we are saying to God, God, I, I have come to realize once again today through this passage of Scripture that when I'm out there on my own, I'm easy prey for that lion. But when I allow myself to be in fellowship with God's people, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, when I stay connected to them and I rely on their prayers and their encouragement and their support, and God, when I learn to depend upon you, the God of all grace, then I know I can get through anything. So let's sing this song out today in praise to the Lord.